0: Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Bringing Clarity to Patient Management in Diabetic Retinopathy and Diabetic Macular Edema, Practical Strategies to Integrate VEGF-Targeted Agents. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant From Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Mrs. Jones is a 54-year-old woman who was recently diagnosed with proliferative diabetic retinopathy with vitreous hemorrhage. It's unclear whether she has diabetic macular edema or not. My name is Michael Singer. I'm a physician and a clinical professor of ophthalmology at the University of Texas Health Science Center and Director of Clinical Research at Medical Center Ophthalmology Associates in San Antonio. In this session, we're going to talk about recommended treatment options for diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy. Intervitreal anti-VEGF injections are now first-line therapy for DME. Laser photocoagulation, which used to be first-line, is now used for non-center-involved DME with circinate rings. Steroids alone are in combination with anti-VEGFs are so now considered second-line agents. For diabetic retinopathy, pan photocoagulation is still the mainstay for proliferative retinopathy, including vitreous hemorrhage. Intravitual injections are now coming up, however, especially in patients who don't want to do panretinal photocoagulation or in combination with photocoagulation for patients with proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And usually steroids are typically used for patients who have concomitant diabetic macular edema along with the diabetic retinopathy as adjunctive therapy. When we look at recommendations, essentially patients with early non-proliferative retinopathy, mild or moderate, anti-VEGF is hardly ever used and even in severe non-proliferative retinopathy. A lot of people do not use it. For proliferative retinopathy, however, patients are usually given Anti-VEGF medications, with or without panretinal photocoagulation, and that's based on the American Academy of Ophthalmology. When you look at how people practice, based on the PAT survey, patients with severe NPDR still are followed by the vast majority of both U.S. and international doctors. However, once you get proliferative retinopathy, anti-VEGF therapy is being used in combination with panretinal photocoagulation. Bevacizumab, which is a full length monoclonal antibody that's an anti VEGF medicine, basically is used due to its cost. However, it never had approval through phase three clinical trials. You've got ranabizumab, which is an anti VEGF fragment of the full length antibody. It was approved in the Rise Ride clinical trials, approved for DME. Brolizizumab, the single chain antibody fragment, was approved in the Chitin Kestrel phase three trials. A flibriceps, a VEGF trap, approved in the Vivid and Vista trials. A new entrant is fericumab, which is both anti-VEGF and anti-ANG2, stabilizing vessels and reducing leakage, approved in the Phase three Yosemite and Rhine trials. In terms of corticosteroids, you've got triamcinolone, which is injected off-label for the treatment of diabetic macular edema, more commonly intraocular implants, which are biodegradable. The dexamethasone implant, which lasts approximately three months based on the phase three MEAD clinical trials. The flucinolone implant, which was approved in the FAME trial, exudes flucinolone acetonide up to three years. So, in summary, the anti-VEGF agents are a good place to start for diabetic macroedema. You can supplement them with steroids in terms of diabetic retinopathy and proliferative retinopathy. Although panretinal photocoagulation was the mainstay, anti-VEGF therapies are now definitely becoming part of the treatment algorithm. In our next session, we're going to discuss the clinical relevance of the latest efficacy data for approved anti-VEGF therapy in treating patients with DR and DME. In this session, we're going to talk about the efficacy data for anti-VEGF medicines in both DME and diabetic retinopathy. Protocol T was a trial between testing three different medications, Bevacizumab, and aflibercept. Basically, they were tested head-to-head, and essentially at one year, the aflibercept gained 13 letters and the Bevacizumab gained 9.7 letters. That was statistically significantly different. The difference between Bevacizumab and a flibricep continued to be statistically significant at two years. However, the difference between ranibizumab and a flibricep was not statistically significant at that time point. In terms of Rosemity and Ryan, that was for a new medication called ferizumab, and ferizumab did non-inferiority trials comparing themselves to a flibricep. They used different treatment intervals over time. One was a fixed treatment interval, and the other was basically based on a potential treat and extend. And it turns out at the one-year and the two-year time points, there was non-inferiority between the three arms. Brolycyzumab was in the and kestrel trials, and the and kestrel trials were comparing themselves for diabetic macular edema to a flibercept. And sure enough, at the one-year time point, both in the kestrel and the kites, there was no statistically significant difference between those two arms. The Panorama trials looked at diabetic retinopathy. So we're going to switch a little bit and talk about diabetic retinopathy. And what they did was they looked at patients with moderately severe to severe NPDR and saw what was the two-step potential improvement in baseline DRSS or diabetic retinopathy severity scores over time. And you can see that essentially the key takeaway was at one year, there was an 80% Risk rate of two-step reduction in diabetic retinopathy and 80% rate risk reduction of vision-threatening complication, including proliferative diabetic retinopathy and center-involved diabetic macular edema. So the Rise and Ride trials looked at ranibizumab for the treatment of diabetic macular edema. However, there was a Postdoc analysis of Rise and Ride looking at patients for diabetic retinopathy severity. And it turns out that there was a two-step improvement in the severity score, especially for patients who had baseline diabetic retinopathy severity of 47 to 53. And this was an 80% reduction in patients' retinopathy score in this subgroup. So essentially what we learned from this process is these anti-VEGF medications were very powerful in terms of controlling diabetic macular edema they were comparable in terms of non-inferiority amongst themselves with the exception that branded agents did a better job in terms of visual acuity and drying than non-branded agents and in addition both the aflibercept and ranibizumab was very good in basically doing a two-step reduction in the diabetic retinopathy severity score. In our next session, let's discuss safety of approved anti-VEGF agents for both diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. In this session, we're going to discuss the safety profiles of approved anti-VEGF agents for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. In terms of injection-related adverse events associated with anti therapy, the most common ones are obviously conjunctival hemorrhage because we're sticking a needle in the eye, eye pain. We do a good job of anesthesia, but sometimes patients feel it. Intraocular pressure increase because we're putting a volume of medicine inside the eye. Typically, what doctors do is they make sure the patients can either see their hand moving or count fingers, Or in rare events, they can put on an indirect ophthalmoscope and look for optic nerve pulsation. Vitreous floaters are what patients typically perceive because of the medication. Rare but serious adverse events are cataracts, which can happen by inadvertently hitting the lens, retinal detachment, or endophthalmitis. These are very serious adverse events, but thank goodness they're very rare. Recently, there was an increase in intraocular inflammation and occlusive retinal vasculitis with brolicizumab, according to the FDA label, that essentially it was about 4%. Intraocular inflammation without occlusive retinitis is seen in anti vegf agents, but usually they're 1% or less. Typically, these do not have occlusive retinitis or retinal vasculitis. In the chitin-kestrel trials, the numbers are better than the Hawk and Harrier trials, but obviously, there's still something we need to think about. The warning signs of anti-VEGF adverse events can be red eye, pain, vision loss, tearing, or unusual post-injection symptoms or floaters. Intraocular inflammation typically presents within two to three weeks after injection. However, much shorter is signs of endophthalmitis, which you usually can present between one and three days after the injection. Typically, in endophthalmitis, decreased vision is the first thing that they notice, while intraocular inflammation, it may be floaters. In terms of adverse event prevention and management, obviously for endophthalmitis, we use topical providone iodine for intravitreal injection because it's a very good bactericidal medicine. In addition, the good news is with this medicine, we've decreased the rate of endophthalmitis to about 1 in 3,000 with injections. For intraocular inflammation, it's a different story. It's an inflammatory condition and we want early treatments with topical Corticosteroids for mild anterior segment inflammation, but you should have a very low threshold for intravitreal or systemic corticosteroids for more severe inflammation. So, although anti VEGF injections are relatively safe, it's very important to understand that there are potential adverse events. And it's important to both educate your patients and your staff to understand what these adverse events can be to make sure you see your patient and give the proper therapy accordingly. In our next session, we're going to discuss strategies for selecting the right therapeutic option for your patients with diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema. In this session, we're going to talk about different strategies for selecting a therapeutic option for patients with diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema. In protocol T, patients with good vision 2040 or better, actually did the same, whether they had ranibizumab, bevacizumab, or aflibercept. If they were 2050 or worse, patients with aflibercept did better. The difference between ranibizumab and aflibercept narrowed in year two and was not statistically significant. However, aflibercept was still better than bevacizumab. Looking at patients that need longer acting treatment, you should think about steroids. For shorter acting steroids like dexamethasone implant is good for about three months or more. The reinforced study was a real life study looking at dexamethasone implants, and over the first year, forty percent of people needed only one shot of dexamethasone implant, and the mean was two injections a year. In terms of longer acting steroids, the flucinolones implants and the Paladin study showed that patients could actually gain approximately four to five letters of improved vision, even after being treated with anti-VEGF medicines over time. And 25% of people didn't need rescue therapy for up to three years. Every time we talk about steroids, we have to talk about this increased risk in cataracts in the vast majority of patients and the increased risk of intraocular pressure in patients who are given corticosteroid therapy. In terms of diabetic retinopathy treatment selection, looking at protocol AB from the DRCR network, There wasn't a statistically significant difference in patients with vitrectomy versus anti-VEGF therapy. You potentially could start patients on anti-VEGF therapy and watch very closely. Patients who had severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy were more likely to have benefit from retinopathy regression than patients with milder retinopathy. And with severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, it's important to think about doing diabetic retinopathy regression because the progression to proliferative diabetic retinopathy can be as high as 50% in one year. Introducing the concept of a shot to patients, you obviously have to allay patients' fears, I talk about how we numb the eye and how very few patients feel anything at all. We talk about the fact that there is a little bit of discomfort after the injection, but I use a non-steroidal drop in my practice, which seems to make people significantly happier, as well as doing a very good job of irrigating out the betadine. And then I want to manage patients' expectations. They say, we're going to start with three loading doses, then we're going to assess. You want to give them some realistic expectation that this is going to be a longer-term process and it's not one and done. In our next session, we're gonna talk about the best practices for selecting and initiating recommended dosing regimens for anti-VEGF targeted agents. When patients come into my clinic, I typically have a discussion that we're gonna start with monthly injections. All the clinical trials were based on monthly loading doses. And typically I do three monthly loading doses for most of the anti-VEGF medications. And then I watch and see what happens. If patients are being treated for diabetic macular edema, I'm pretty much relying on the OCT. My goal is to try to get them to get dry. And assuming they get dry at three months, I'll start increasing the interval, usually at two-week intervals over time, up to three months between shots. If they start getting increased fluid, I'll cut back by two to four weeks going forward. Or if they develop vitreous hemorrhage, which was unexpected. This essentially is called treat and extend. It's been shown To be relatively effective, monthly therapy does very well, but it's very hard to adhere to. As-needed therapy didn't do as well, so this is basically a compromise where you're essentially extending over time, hoping to get the best results of monthly therapy without the treatment burden that's associated with it. Now, if I'm treating patients who have diabetic retinopathy, it's a little different. What I'm doing is trying to get rid of the vitreous hemorrhage, and I'm going to give them three monthly doses, and I'm going to look at stability based on is it clearing out. And if essentially patients are doing well with treatment, and either if they have laser or don't want laser, I'm going to keep extending anti-VEGF therapy for up to four months. The difference is in DME, I'm looking at the OCT. In proliferative diabetic retinopathy, I'm looking at the reduction of the vitreous hemorrhage. And again, I extend based on what the eye looks like in proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and I extend based on what the OCT looks like on macular edema. So just seeing patients in the office Typically, patients with mild NPDR, I'll just see once a year. People with moderate NPDR, depending what's involved, I'll be more like six to nine months. In patients with severe NPDR, we're three to six months. Proliferative diabetic retinopathy that don't have active neovascularization of vitreous hemorrhage, it's every three months. Non-center-involved DME every six months and center-involved DME every one to four months. I will tell you, most patients with center-involved DME are usually treated. And for people who have high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy, they're treated as well because of the fact that they have a high incidence of potentially causing vitreous hemorrhage and traction retinal detachments. Overall, what we tried to do today is give you an understanding of the anti-VEGF landscape in terms of treating patients with diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy. There are a number of different agents out there. They do a very good job of drying up the retina and regressing retinopathy. And based on individual algorithms, you can use them accordingly to help treat this patient population. Thank you again for your attention. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.